The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it's my honor to introduce our guest, Dr. Anna Jones Crabtree. Along with her husband, Doug, Dr. Crabtree is the owner and operator of Velikas Farms and Institute, a nationally recognized first-generation organic dryland crop farm in northern Hill County, Montana. Their remarkable biologically diverse farm grows between 15 to 20 unique organic heirloom and specialty crops. Dr. Jones Crabtree is an innovator who has championed sustainability throughout her decades-long federal career with the U.S. Forest Service, serving as the first regional sustainable operations coordinator and as the national sustainable operations director. Dr. Jones Crabtree holds a B.S. in construction engineering and management and an M.S. in civil engineering, construction emphasis from Purdue University. She earned her Ph.D. in civil and environmental engineering with a sustainable systems minor from Georgia Institute of Technology. She is a registered professional engineer and an early accredited U.S. green building professional. She also is a Donella Meadows Leadership Fellow. She serves on multiple boards and has received numerous awards, including the prestigious White House Greening Government Sustainability Hero Award. Welcome, Anna. Hello, Melinda. It's great to be on your show. It's really an honor to have you. Your work is truly remarkable. My first question, though, I want to backtrack a little bit about your work history. You are a professional and highly successful engineer. What led you to farming? Well, I met Doug. (laughs) (laughs) I I, uh, grew up in rural Colorado, and then my family, when I was 11, moved to rural Washington State. Both my parents are from the Midwest, so we often would go visit. My mom had uncles that farmed, and my grandfather was a, a longtime lead mechanic for John Deere in uh, Indiana. So we had a, I had a history of agriculture in my background and understood farming. And then I met my farmer at Purdue and Doug had just given up a full ride engineering scholarship to go back into agriculture. That's somewhat where the farming journey started because all he wanted to do was actually get back into farming. And it just took us till we were 40 to make the launch and do it our own way. Well, you know, I was calculating the years involved and the fact that you started a farm from scratch at age 40 in an environment that is quite different from what you knew. So Doug, who is the agronomist in the relationship, and you, who are the engineer, go from a more familiar landscape with, for Doug anyway, with rain that you could depend on, to one that is increasingly drier must be a true challenge. Um, it's really about your farming system and fitting your farming system to the environment that you're in and the ecology. I would say you know, under a 
planet situation that we have now where there's no stable climate and there's no stable climate anywhere. So there's going to be different challenges. I, I know some of our farming friends in the Midwest suffered with too much moisture, right. <laughs> whereas we were suffering with too little. So um, it's really about looking at the unique situation that your farm exists in and what is that network of support. Also, um, Paul, our cattle grazing staff member likes to say, what is the, what is our unfair advantage? Mm. (laughs) You know, so think about what your unfair advantage is wherever you are, because there's pluses and and minuses wherever you are also. So um, yeah, we had to spend some time learning the network of people. Doug had a good connections with the organic community here in Montana. And we knew that there were places to sell things and people that were caring about organic. And that's, that seemed a nice place to launch as well as land was a land was affordable. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to touch on, since you mentioned systems, I want to touch on your Donella Meadows Leadership Fellowship. Tell me how that changed the way you think about farming. Oh, gosh, it wasn't so much about farming. It was a set of tools around thinking about your life and your work in in a systems perspective, building your ability to be reflective and scientific and step back and say, okay, what's actually going on here? What's the data telling me? And the other thing about that experience is there were about 20 people in my cohort and I think there were ended up being four or five cohorts with this program throughout the years. Every one of us was from a different background, um, several international participants, but everybody working on the core issues of sustainability in their place. And that created such a nice longer term network of fellows that that's a group of people that I can reach out to even today and and ask questions or get some reflection if you're trying to deal with a gnarly problem. So the systems piece of that is is really tiered back to Donella Meadows' teachings around systems thinking. And I could go into who Donella Meadows is, but just how do you think about what are the parts and pieces and not optimize each individual part and piece, but optimize the system as a whole? Well, I think systems thinking is key to our survival on the planet. And I don't think we're taught to think in a systems kind of way. So tell me if you could describe for our listeners, what exactly is systems thinking? Oh, great. (laughs) Great question. I kind of want to have everybody who's listening read Donella Meadows' Systems Thinking Primer book because she has some great examples in there. So as a farm, if you think about what is your farming system, okay, well, there's the crop rotation, right, what you grow, but surrounding that is your climate and your inputs of moisture and sun, and we hope that we get these outputs. So what what's the magic that goes on between those inputs and the outputs of grain that end up in your semi-truck that goes to a local miller? There's lots of parts and pieces to that also, right? Like what's the equipment working? What's the insurance support system? What's your labor pool? And so for our farm, 
in our farming system, we are very low input. We are not buying a lot of things in bottles and bags to bring in, to import into our system. We are using our, our crop rotation as our key methodology to build soil, manage pest and disease cycles. And our biggest off-farm inputs are our labor, fuel, and that's really it. And there's some inoculant that we purchase for lentils and legumes and peas um, as part of helping to make sure they can actually survive. But I think I'm getting to what your questions are. Absolutely. I think it's bigger than thinking linearly. And yet I think that our culture teaches us to think that way. And as you brilliantly mentioned during the Climate Underground webinar that was recently held, this is Al Gore's efforts to mitigate climate change. And he wisely had two farmers speak, you and Dave Chapman with the Real Organic Project, about this notion of regenerative agriculture and farm policy and how farm policy might help mitigate climate change. And you said that we can change individual practices, but really what we need to change is mindset And that's how I came to the discussion of being more systems thinkers. Yes, very much so. Because it's about what what are you optimizing? Like This is not about a checklist of do these things and then add these things to your soil. This is about really being reflective and observant of what's happening out on your land. What is the system that surrounds you and how do you think about all those variables it's not about just saying oh let's do cover crops across billions of acres i mean that's important definitely would be a step in the right direction but it may not it's not necessarily going to be the thing that shifts us into a much better agricultural system what would shift us into a better agricultural system mm, i think We've we've got to find ways that many, many, many more people are welcome, invited, set up for success to actually do the work of farming. Now, there are 80% of farms, these are USDA statistics, somebody's holding an off-farm job. That's for stable income. That's for health insurance. Um, you know, that's crazy making. I, I often joke to myself, like how many of my food company friends are having another job just to support their regenerative food company habit, right? Like that, that's the joke we have in farming. And and I think it's really tough to figure out how to launch new people in agriculture. Doug and I are first generation ourselves here in Montana. We've hosted over 14 apprentices with the hope that people would come work with us, do tremendous learning, and then we could launch them into being you know, neighboring farms and farmers and we could share equipment. And uh, that hurdle is is really tough in terms of taking on the risk, having the financial capital, having the hotspot to actually stick it out. I think to really change our system, we have to invite more people to really be able to do the work of farming. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really hard work when you're doing it with integrity and true stewardship. Uh, Most definitely. Farming is hard work, no matter what system you have, but trying to do it in a way that Doug and I are doing it. It's like you're, you're trying to build a new system while trying to exist and survive in the system that's, that is around you that is broken, right? Like we all understand that that system at large is broken and is not in support of our long-term care of the planet or our long-term survival as the human species. You know, Anna, I don't know that the majority of us, and I'm going to say us as eaters, collective eaters, consumers, citizens, do see that the farm system is broken because the rhetoric that we hear consistently is that farmers have a a toolbox and they're feeding the world. But the stories that you tell of the reality of the farm and what true stewardship looks like, that is not being supported by our national farm policy. Yes. And so one of the things that we've been working through is this challenge of climate change and Last year, 2022, we had 9% of our average production. 2021, it was 34%. So those last two years have been devastating. This year, 2023, I think we're going to land somewhere in the 50% range. So I don't say that to have your listeners be like, wow, that's so tough and I'm so sorry for you. I say that in that farming systems like ours you don't build soil on quarterly profit reporting cycles and you don't build soil on one one year cycles. And when we don't have anything to sell and farming right now is based on having production. There's an assumption that you just production and that's how you get paid. And if you don't have production, but you've still grazed cows, you've still hired people, you've still taught people, you've still seeded 3000 acres of cover crop, um, you've still done the work of stewardship and then you don't have any income and the support system that is outside of you supposed to support you in that is crop insurance, which is not very friendly towards our complex farming system. It leaves us in a real bind. Doug and I have to figure out how to make up that gap. So to be creative in terms of a forward-looking solution, we've launched a CSSA program. So it's a riff off of a CSA program. It's Community Supported Stewardship Agriculture with the idea that for $100, you can help provide stewardship services on our farm for one acre. And this has been a really fun journey because it's a way to connect people directly to our farm. So instead of going and buying carbon offset credits next time you get on an airline flight, who knows where those carbon credit money actually goes, right? Do you actually know what your money is going into? Whereas if you are a CSSA member, you're going to know exactly what we're doing on this farm, how we're trying to manage our stewardship and take care of land that provides clean air and clean water and healthy soil and healthy food for many of us. So yeah, check out our CSSA program. That's one of our experimental solutions to keeping farms like ours in business over the long run. 
Anna, let me take a break. I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking today with Dr. Anna Jones-Crabtree. Along with her husband, Doug, she is the owner and operator of Velikas Farms and Institute, which is a nationally recognized first-generation organic dryland crop farm in Northern Hill County, Montana. And what's most remarkable about their farm is that it is biologically diverse, growing between 15 and 20 unique organic heirloom and specialty crops in the middle of a climate crisis. Well, Anna, with regard to your CSSA, it seems like you are requesting an investment from people who support your way of farming. And from my perspective, this is exactly what I think our government should be doing, supporting biodiversity, having some way of assessing farmers for their stewardship merits, and helping to not only feed the world with a nutritious food supply, but feed their communities and support their local communities while also helping to mitigate climate change. Do you see any kind of federal support for what you're doing? Uh, undeniably, there's a lot more attention to things that were our system than there has been in years past. And we should all be taking direct advantage of that in the ways that we, we can. I think the challenge that we have here, Melinda, is that becomes almost another full-time job <laughs> to, to follow all of the uh, funding that's coming now towards us. It's also insufficient and it's also been focused on a practice by practice approach, not a whole systems approach. And I, I do think that there is a role for government in this undeniably because government helps set kind of the rules of engagement and how we function as a society. I do think the other piece though is people writ large have lost a connection to the land. They have lost a connection to a farm. They don't understand what it means to actually grow food. And so another purpose of our CSSA program is to help grow that understanding create direct relationships between a farm and an eater. And again, this isn't going to reach everybody, but is there a way to have some ripple effects out? Mm -hmm. I think it's a unique model. And I love that you are putting it out there to see if it's going to work. I want to get back to that systems piece, because I think it is so critical and central to our discussion today. You had mentioned during the Climate Underground webinar that ecology is really central to social systems and to economics, and we don't really give it the weight that it deserves. Can you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. I think in the Climate Underground, what I was trying to talk about is what really is sustainability, and often we as a society allow economics to drive our decision-making as if economics was the be-all, end-all system. What we forget 
is that we as humans have created our own, we have created the economic system. And I don't think it's necessarily working in ways that are supportive of our longer term care of ourselves and the planet. What is the base of everything that happens in this world? It's our ecology. If we don't have an intact, biologically diverse, working ecological system, there is no way we're going to have intact, working, diverse social systems, let alone an economic system that functions on behalf of everybody. So that's the big kind of the big picture view. And remind me again what specifically your your question was, Melinda. I'm sorry. You are answering it. I wanted to get at how ecology is central to everything. And when I say everything, I mean economics as well as social structures. And it's interesting to me that you as an engineer understand this. And I'm wondering where and how did you learn about the central role that ecology plays in everything? Mm. Well, I have to say that as a as a child, I always thought I was going to be a scientist. I remember when my dad remodeled our kitchen. He took the sink and the cabinets out, and they were sitting outside of our garage area. And I I turned that into my laboratory. So I was experimenting with different types of soil and leaf mixtures and how fast they dried out. Or you know, this is in Colorado, so that that was always part of my nature and my upbringing. I became an engineer because I come from a long line of engineers and it was a way to be a little different as a young female. It was something I liked. I liked math and science. I liked problem solving. And then fast forward, I was in school doing construction because I didn't, I didn't want to have to be doing the design of buildings. I wanted to be managing the process of building things. And I was lucky enough to have some other classes that I sought out around environmental decision-making. And um, so I started on this path of really thinking about, okay, well, what is the connection between our planet and things like recycling and building materials and our impact on the planet? So I can't say there was anything specific in my engineering training. It's just that as an engineer, you learn to think about problem solving and systems, at least the perspective that I was coming from. And then you just overlay the ecology on that. And so it's just been something that's been really important to me is what is our role in helping to create more sustainable living situations Mm. on the planet? Well, I think if we want to eat well and be well, we have to pay attention to this point that you bring home. And I love that you like problem solving because you are sitting in a vast region. I had the pleasure and privilege of visiting your farm recently. And the stark contrast between what you are doing versus what your neighbors are doing really hit home. And for someone who I am based in the Midwest, I grew up on the East Coast, it's very interesting to me to see different regions of the country where different commodity crops are grown. And you are living in a wheat-centric region. Your neighbors just grow wheat. You have this incredible biodiversity and you are solving problems like 
the rainfall, for example, and wind erosion and smoke. And you've got strips of biodiversity that help block snow, therefore increasing the amount of water you can capture. And you've noticed increased levels of production in those strips. So as an engineer, together with your agronomist husband, I think you make a fabulous team in working through some of our present day problems with climate change. Oh, thanks for that, Melinda. It's really about, you know, what's our natural infrastructure? You know, as an engineer, you can think about roads and bridges and buildings, and that's our human built infrastructure. But nature herself is the most amazing technology. And we just have to learn to listen and watch and reflect and pay closer attention. Exactly. Our strips, those simple, seemingly simple things of leaving a place of biodiversity interspersed within our farm fields that catches snow, which is the moisture giving piece of the seasons here. And that little bit of snow, we can see the increased yield on our yield monitors and our combines. We actually just completed a, another fun experimental project funded by Xerces Society and Mad Agriculture. It was a half mile planting of what we're calling an eco buffer, which was a line of snow fence on the west to catch snow. Six feet away is a line of hardy uh, non-native caraganas, which grow really fast, shrubs, and they will also catch snow and they'll provide some nice shelter for a third row of all native pollinator friendly species. So we're excited to see how this goes. It was a lot of work to do a half mile long, but we have 300 potential miles where we could be putting windbreaks, essentially they're windbreaks that reduce the wind, catch the snow, help retain the moisture. It's about bringing the water back here to the prairies because we've really, if you think about systems, what was the natural water flow system here across the plains? Oh, we, you know, we had bison, we had buffalo wallows, we had some a variety of different ways that water flowed across here. And we've destroyed all of that in a lot of a lot of ways with our agricultural practices. So as an example, we had the Montana Conservation Corps come up and help us with this tree planting project. And they had just come off another project where they had spent quite a few weeks building beaver dam analogs further east in Montana, where they're actually putting in things that act like beaver, old beaver dams because we don't have beavers anymore, but then it catches water and it keeps the water on the prairie. So super fascinating. That could be the subject of a whole nother interview with <laughs> the water cycle on the plains. Anna, do you have a short message to leave our listeners with? I would just say, get to know a farmer, really get to know a farmer, not just what they're selling, but understand their system their growing system as well as their life system. What is supporting them? And find a way to help enable that. You have taught me that having a commitment to stewardship can create real community and what we're really all looking for. So I want to thank you for that. We've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Anna Jones Crabtree. 
Along with her husband, Doug, she is the owner and operator of Velikas Farms and Institute, and I will provide a link, a nationally recognized first-generation organic dryland crop in northern Hill County, Montana. Their remarkable biologically diverse farm grows between 15 to 20 unique organic heirloom and specialty crops. Thank you so much for your time today, Anna. Uh, Thank you, Melinda. It's always a great pleasure to get to talk to you. 